Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Before we get started, we're going to do our usual thing and thank a few more Patreons. So a big thank you to Alicia, Tiki Tiki Tambo No, Susan, Trish, Donna, Jess, Natalie, Kemley and Taj. Thanks so much, guys, for your support. We really do appreciate it more than we can put into words. This week, we're going to be discussing another very devastating case, and we've gathered a lot of our research from a book by Wayne Miller called The Murder of Cherie. So we did just want to mention that because if you're interested in this case, you'll find a lot more information in that book that we haven't been able to fit into this episode, and we highly recommend the book. Um, also just a warning that this episode does involve the death of a young child. So if that's not your thing, um, feel free to switch off. With that, I'm going to pass you over to Bill to get us started. Kerry Greenhill had had a hard life. Her parents had brought her into the world when they were just teenagers and were unable to cope with the responsibilities of parenthood. After trying their hardest to parent Kerry, they decided the best choice would be to hand her to her paternal grandparents, Leslie and Joy, to raise her in Preston. She was two and a half years old when they took her in. In the early 80s, Kerry decided to move out to make it on her own and settled in Rosebud, which is a seaside town 75 kilometres southeast of Melbourne's CBD, located on the Mornington Peninsula. When she was 17 years old, Kerry met a tall, handsome man named Anthony Mandeel, and the two ended up falling in love. It wasn't long before Kerry was pregnant with their first child, and the two decided to get married, choosing the backyard of one of Kerry's uncle's homes as the venue. Their first child, Cherie Joy Mandeel, was born on the 25th of February 1985 at the Dandenong Hospital and by all reports she was the perfect little baby. She was known to sleep through the night from an early age and everyone around her just thought she was an absolute bundle of joy. Kerry was smitten and even entered Cherie in baby contests where she actually did quite well. Initially things were good for the little family. Kerry was working as a receptionist in an electrical store and Anthony was employed by his father's tool-making business, while Kerry's mother babysat baby Cherie. On the 30th of May, 1987, Anthony and Kerry's second daughter was born. Her name was Crystal. It wasn't long after that that things began to fall apart for the young couple and they decided to split up. Not long after the separation... Kerry moved to Mornington, and she enrolled Cherie in three-year-old kindergarten. Cherie took to it straight away. She was a very extroverted little girl and loved making new friends at kinder. Around this time, Kerry began dating a troubled young man from Frankston named Shane Beasley. Despite his troubles, Shane loved Kerry's girls, and they even took his last name. Shane was well known to be a part of the Frankston drug scene and was a regular user of sedatives like Rohypnol as well as heroin. Home life was very difficult around this time and Shane was known to frequently overdose on drugs in the family home. 
Carrie was also fighting some demons and ended up being hospitalised for a period of time. DHS, or the Department of Human Services, stepped in and removed the girls from the home, placing Cherie with her granddad Neil and Crystal with her grandma Marie. The eight months Cherie spent with granddad Neil were happy and the two bonded. Neil felt he was able to make up for the fact that he was quite absent in Kerry's upbringing. Eight months later, Kerry was able to have the girls back and was soon pregnant with another little girl, who would be named Jacinta. Apparently Cherie was like a little mini-mother to Jacinta, and Kerry used to say she was five, going on 45. In 1990, Cherie was excited to start prep at Frankston's Monterey Primary School. She was a very happy-go-lucky little girl and thoroughly enjoyed school. It wasn't long before Kerry was pregnant again and gave birth to her first son, who the couple named Shane Jr. Again, Cherie's mini maternal instincts came out as she helped her mother take care of her baby brother. One morning, Kerry had woken up to Cherie saying, Mum, baby Shane's still asleep. Kerry looked at the clock and woke with a start when she realised it was 8.03am and this was two hours later than the time that he usually woke up. Her stomach dropped as she ran to the bassinet and soon her worst fears were confirmed. Little Shane had passed away from cot death. Reportedly Cherie ran down the street crying and screaming. She was devastated to lose her little brother. Cherie's grandma would remember a time, not long after Shane's death, where Cherie was looking up to the sky at a ray of sunshine and said, My baby brother's up there, bringing tears to her grandma's eyes. By the middle of 1990, Kerry had met a new man at a local hotel. His name was Steve Ludlow. Cherie was thriving at school. She loved getting herself ready in the mornings and being independent. Her little sister Crystal thought she was the absolute best and just idolised her. In January 1991, Kerry, Steve and the kids moved to Rosebud to have a fresh start and leave their drug pass behind. Cherie started at Rosebud Primary School and it took her no time at all to settle in. She rode her bike everywhere and it didn't take long for adults in the area to notice and become slightly concerned that such a young girl was out riding on her own. One day after school, Cherie was riding her bike near the school when her teacher Jill Young spotted her alone. She told Cherie she should go home because it was almost dark. Cherie said, I'm riding my bike and I'm having fun, and my mum knows I'm here, so it's okay. Jill replied, well, it's not okay, so go home and be careful. In April 1991, Rosebud Primary School, along with the rest of the state, implemented a Stranger Danger training program for the kids. The talk revolved around never getting into the car with strangers and never going off alone with strangers. They were told that if a stranger approached them, they were to run to the house with yellow badges on the letterboxes, which are known as safety houses in Australia. And what that means is basically just it's a place where there's always going to be a person home at those crucial times of when children would be walking to and from school. And it's something that was around a lot in the 90s. 
On the 29th of June, Cherie begged her mother to let her ride her bike to the milk bar. Kerry was reluctant but eventually gave in, asking Cherie to run an errand to the Silver Heirlooms clothing shop. Kerry gave Cherie $20 and there was to be $1 left over from Silver Heirlooms for Cherie to buy lollies at the milk bar. Cherie was super excited to get out of the house on her bike. She rode to Silver Heirlooms and then straight back home, forgetting that she was going to go to the milk bar. Kerry let her go back down and decided to write her a list to grab some other things from the milk bar while she was there. Cigarettes, a pasty, a sausage roll, corn chips and a bottle of Coke. Cherie made it to the milk bar and was known to leave to go back home with her purchases just after 2pm. Not long after 2pm, Kerry said to Steve, Cherie should be back by now. Steve offered to go out and look for her but Kerry was reluctant. No, give her a couple more minutes. Soon after, there was a knock on the front door. A woman who saw Cherie riding often had noticed Cherie's bike leaning up against a tree in the street, but Cherie was nowhere to be found. Steve yelled out for Kerry and the pair began to panic immediately. Steve ran through the streets looking for the little girl before stopping at a payphone to call triple zero. After he spoke to police, he ran back to the house to wait for them. Police were there quickly and took down all the information. Steve and Kerry were understandably beside themselves. The news of Cherie's disappearance spread quickly, and by 5pm there was a news bulletin that a six-year-old girl was missing and thought to be abducted. One person who heard the bulletin was a psychotherapist, Margaret Hobbs, who was an expert on men who were sexual offenders and her mind immediately went to one of her clients. Margaret had been seeing a sexual offender whose name was Robert Lowe. He was different from any of the other offenders she had counselled over the many years in the profession in that he continued offending while seeing Margaret, while continuing to try and charm her. He seemed to get off on telling her about his crimes and appeared to feel no remorse. She had to watch as he continued to refine his techniques over time in an attempt to remain undetected by police, and his crimes were escalating at an alarming rate. Robert Lowe was born in England into a well-to-do family. He had the finest things in life and went to the best boarding schools until his father died when he was eight years old. His mother soon married a doctor and the family was uprooted and moved across the world to New Zealand. In 1968, Robert Lowe moved to Melbourne and studied at the Melbourne School of Textiles before beginning a job at Dunlop. He was at a church event when he met a lovely young woman named Lorraine Sangster. Lorraine was an innocent woman who had recently escaped a cult-like religion. She didn't have a lot of life or dating experience. She liked the look of Robert Lowe, he was tall, athletic, and in her opinion, attractive. They dated on and off for some time as Robert initially struggled to commit to the relationship. In 1971, Lorraine found a letter in her mailbox that was from Robert. It said that he didn't want to see her again. This is a good example of the ups and downs of their relationship 
and it wasn't long before they were back together again. In June 1972, Robert asked Lorraine to marry him. One day, Robert's brother Rick and sister-in-law flew over from New Zealand to see the couple, and Lorraine was finally able to meet someone from Robert's family. At some point during the visit, Rick asked Robert in front of the group, If you died now, would you go to heaven? Robert replied, Oh yes, I'm now a Christian, I've changed. Rick then questions, If you'd died before, for crimes you had committed. To which Robert responds, I'd have gone to hell. Lorraine listened and assumed Rick was talking about crimes in terms of not believing in God rather than actual crimes. By June 1974, Robert and Lorraine welcomed their first son, Benjamin Selby Lowe. One night, when Lorraine was home with the baby, one of her neighbours came over to let her know they had received a call from Robert. Robert hadn't allowed a home phone in the house because there was a public phone just down the street, so that's why the neighbour had come to her with the information. The neighbour told Lorraine that she needed to head to Paran Police Station with ID to pick up Robert. When she got there, Robert told her that the police must have had the wrong car registration number and that's why he was there. He appeared completely unfazed and told Lorraine he was taking her out to dinner. Lorraine believed him. The couple's second son was born in 1976 and they named him Jonathan McKinley Lowe. In 1979, Robert, Lorraine and the two little boys moved to a new house in Glen Waverley. They were doing really well for themselves and were well respected by those that knew them. They even had a holiday house in Rosebud. In 1984, Lorraine received another phone call from Robert. This time he asked her to come to the Springvale Magistrates Court. When she asked why, he told her that he had been falsely accused of something and he needed her there to prove to the court that he was a respectable family man. When she got there, she found out that two young girls, approximately 12 years old, were testifying against Robert. The girls were distraught and couldn't get out what Robert had done to them and because of this, he was able to get off without consequence. Not long after, Robert had to attend court again, and again he told Lorraine that he was being accused of a crime he didn't commit. Unfortunately for him, this time there was proof he had been acting inappropriately. An article was published about him in The Sun, which was titled Banana Strut Man. Robert Lowe had been caught walking around the streets wearing swimming briefs with a banana shoved down the front. He then approached a number of young girls and said vulgar, disgusting things to them. Robert went to all the local newsagents and retailers and bought all of the Sun newspapers so nobody would see them, but it was too late. Whilst Lorraine hadn't seen the article, some of the parents at her children's school had. Those parents went to the school principal and asked for Jonathan and Benjamin to be removed from the school for what their father had done. The principal refused to do that, but suggested to Lorraine that it might be best if Robert didn't enter the schoolyard anymore. Soon after this, he was charged with fondling his erection in front of some young girls at Waverley Gardens Shopping Centre. 
This seemed to be his crime of choice at the time, and a year later he was arrested for stalking two girls at Chadston before pulling down his pants and masturbating. So as we mentioned earlier, Robert Lowe was seeing Margaret Hobbs about his sexual compulsion issues. When they first met, he told her he was keen to change and didn't want to be an offender anymore. Upon their first meeting, Margaret wrote about Robert. His behavioural problem is a chronic one, having been established over 15 years and has been strengthened and conditioned by non-detection. He had not been afforded the opportunity of treatment due to non-detection and continuing mistaken beliefs. He expresses great relief that he has finally been caught. Robert Lowe was placed on a $500 good behaviour bond for the banana down the undies situation. Lorraine attended one of Robert's sessions with Margaret and she was irritated when she was told that Robert was an exhibitionist who exposed his genitals to people. Lorraine appeared to shut down with this news. She just didn't want to hear what Margaret had to say about her husband. In December 1984, on a hot summer's day, Robert was hanging around Preston looking for young children. Two young girls, Pauline and Melissa, aged 6 and 11, saw him dressed in daggy clothing with a weird look on his face. He suddenly reached into his pants and pulled out pieces of fruit, throwing them over the nearby fence. The girls were intrigued and rode their bikes closer to get a good look at what the weird man was doing. As they got closer, the man beckoned on them, Come here. They got closer and the man asked them, What's your name? Melissa gave a fake name. He asked her, Where do you live? And she gave a fake address. She noticed that his hands were in his pocket and he seemed to be moving them. He asked her about which sports she played and she told him she played basketball and volleyball. He then said, What did you say? You play with boys' balls? He then started asking her questions about whether she had seen her brothers naked. She was disgusted by this line of questioning and began to feel uncomfortable. He asked her, Do you want to go with me? Over and over again, she continued to say no. Suddenly, the uncle of the two young girls sped over and got Robert Lowe's registration number. Police contacted him about this incident and he denied any knowledge of it. It was his word against the girls. Robert continued to see Margaret for the counselling and she continued to be disturbed by him. She was concerned by how close he liked to get to his victims, which was unusual for an exhibitionist. This was the first time since she'd been practising that Margaret felt like she wasn't making any difference to Robert Lowe's pattern of behaviour. Robert continued to offend against young children, mostly girls. He was looked at for an attempted child abduction and an incident with two other children, all aged 10 years and under. Margaret wrote another report about him soon after. Quote, In 1990, he was a rep with Invicta, which gave him lots of time on the road. He spent a large proportion of his working life patrolling beats. In this respect, he became a predatory opportunist. He had a regular patrol of the beach suburbs and would be around when school was finishing or at lunchtime. He carried his bathers with him, spent time at swimming pools where he would initiate conversation. 
extended his behaviour throughout many trips interstate and within Victoria, and perhaps indulged even more because he was off his home ground. Carried disguises in hats and glasses to confuse identification. Margaret reached the end of her tether with Robert Lowe a number of times, throwing him out of her office and asking him not to come back. This didn't stop him from continually coming back and trying to manipulate her into continuing their counselling situation. He even asked her to write a court report for him, pleading at her until she agreed. However, it didn't paint him in a favourable light. It said, I am of the opinion that he truly believes that he is indulging in harmless behaviour. It does need the intervention of the courts to instil in him the illegality of his actions. The censure of the courts at this time will assist with any ongoing therapy once it has been clearly demonstrated to Mr Lowe that his behaviour is unacceptable to the community. On the 1st of March 1991, Heathmont Secondary College were having their annual swimming carnival at the Croydon Swimming Pool. At around 9.30am, three boys noticed an old man hanging around just outside the pool fence fondling himself. He approached the fence to talk to them, saying, I'm waiting to meet some girls about 16 or 17. They're coming on the bus. I'm going to have sex with them. I'm going to lick them. The boys thought that it was quite hilarious and went to a teacher to tell him what they had seen. The teacher, Philip Reynolds, chased the man to the car as he tried to hide his license plate number. Philip yelled out to the man, You're gone, pal. We've got your number. Police were called, and unsurprisingly, the creepy old man was Robert Lowe. In his personal time, Robert Lowe had developed a new hobby. He had become obsessed with researching and clipping articles about missing girls, including the victims of Mr. Cruel and Eloise Wurledge. On Saturday, the 22nd of June, 1991, Robert and his son Benjamin were heading down to Rosebud to look at a fridge to potentially buy. On their way, they passed a lighthouse milk bar and Robert's eyes were drawn to a little girl riding a pink bike nearby. A couple of days later, he returned to the area and sat in his car waiting for her. And again, she appeared with her pink bike and helmet, riding around without a care in the world. He stalked her, following at a distance as not to draw any attention to himself from nearby adults. In his mind, he set himself a date to strike. Next Saturday, the 29th of June, 1991. The next Saturday, as planned, he set off at around 7am and waited at the milk bar, where, as we discussed earlier, little Cherie Beasley would later arrive to buy lunch for her family and Robert Lowe was there waiting for her. The abduction did not go unnoticed and Robert Lowe was seen with a very distressed Cherie. The Henley family had just left an outing to Rye Pier and began their drive towards McRae. As they were driving past Safeway and Rye, they noticed a distressed girl in the front seat wearing a pink bike helmet. They noticed that the driver looked very angry and thought maybe he was a frustrated parent. When Robert got back to his Glen Waverley home later that evening, he walked straight to the garage 
and put on the washing machine. Lorraine found this extremely odd. This was not something he had done in the 19 years they had been together. Meanwhile, Cherie's mother Kerry and stepfather Steve were beside themselves with fear in Rosebud. The extended family had arrived to help with the search for Cherie. Police began to door knock in the local area and a line search for Cherie was conducted. The line search covered a one kilometre area around each side of Parkmore Road, which included the beach, public toilets, boat sheds and bushland. At 11pm, Kerry appeared in front of the media to make a plea for whoever had taken her daughter. She said, Whoever has got her, please take care of her. Let her come home. She's had a sad life. She lost her baby brother to cot death last year. She deserves to be at home. She loved to play. She's got lots of friends. She lives for her bike. When police went through their files to identify possible sexual offenders in the Rosebud area, there was no shortage of names. There was even some speculation that Cherie could be a fourth victim of Mr. Krull, although the Mr. Krull Task Force Operation Spectrum assured them it was unlikely. As with all abduction cases, police had to start with Cherie's inner circle, her immediate family. The initial theory was that Cherie may have been taken hostage until Steve and Kerry could pay off a drug debt, but this turned out to be unsubstantiated. Police helicopters, SES workers and volunteers continued to search for the little girl for three days before those efforts died down. At that stage, a task force was assembled to investigate Cherie's disappearance. It was named Task Force Zenith. When Kerry talked to police, she told them that she believed she'd seen her ex-husband and Cherie's biological father, Anthony, parked in his car near her home in the days before Cherie's disappearance. This was enough for police to take out a search warrant for Anthony's home in Carrum. When police arrived, Anthony was home with his partner and cousin and was happy to welcome police into his home to search. When they asked him where he was when Cherie disappeared, he told them he was at Lake Eildon at the time. His car was seized and his house searched, but nothing suspicious was found. Not long after the disappearance, another witness was uncovered, a six-year-old boy who had been with Cherie at the time of the abduction. Shane Park told police that he and Cherie had been together when a small blue car pulled up beside them. An old man inside had gotten out, grabbed Cherie off her bike and put her into his car. A breakthrough came on the 17th of July, 1991. A previously incorrect news report was amended to let the public know that Cherie's bike helmet was not found with her bike. And that set off alarm bells for Sue Marks and her 11-year-old daughter, Danielle. The pair had been staying at a motel on the Nepean Highway on the day that Cherie was abducted, when they saw a little girl in a pink helmet distressed inside a blue car. The blue car had stopped alongside them at some lights, and they saw the little girl screaming and screwing up her face before pushing her face against the window and mouthing help. As much as the moment stuck in their minds, they assumed the man was probably a family member of the little girl. Three other people also confirmed they saw a similar sight 
and all the witnesses confirmed that the abductor's car was a 1985-1988 Toyota Corolla in a sewer blue. This information, along with a stock photo of the type of car they were looking for, was released to the public, and police in Victoria were asked to start pulling over and checking cars matching the description. On Saturday the 20th of July, Robert Lowe's son, Benjamin, heard an announcement on the radio asking all owners of blue Toyota Corollas to check their cars in with the police. Benjamin asked his father whether he was going to go to the police to have his car checked in, to which Robert replied, no, don't worry about it. At some stage during the investigation, police came across a report that had been written about the man that had approached the young boys at the Croydon pool, and they noticed that his car matched the description, and they had a license plate for him. They called the owner of the car, who was Robert's employer, because it was a company car, and she reluctantly gave them his information. Police left a message for Robert to get back to them, which he initially tried to ignore, before eventually calling them back on the 30th of July. A police officer took down all his information so that they could check his criminal record and asked him where he was the weekend Cherie Beasley was abducted. He told them that he was at home with his wife and children the entire day. Police asked him if he had any connections to the Rosebud area, and he said no, despite owning a holiday home there. The detective asked Robert if he could have his home phone number so he could get back in touch if he need be. But Robert refused, and this ended up raising more red flags for the officer. It didn't take long before police had a hold of Robert Lowe's entire criminal history, and it was alarming. Around the same time that this interaction happened, a Crime Stoppers message came through to the station about Robert Lowe. It was from Margaret Hobbs, although she had remained anonymous. It said, I know a guy through therapeutic dealings who has a history of sexual offences. He has been charged with indecent exposure and also for chatting up young kids. He has a holiday house in Rosebud and owns a blue hatchback. He has only just returned from Sydney where he was on business as a salesman. He is a commercial traveller. He is married with two kids and lives in a house in Mannering Drive, Glen Waverley. His name is Robert Lowe. He is in his 50s, about 5'10", thin, with darkish hair, and he often wears a hat. Police were beginning to feel like they might have their man. They were able to obtain a search warrant to search Robert Lowe's holiday home in Rosebud on the 2nd of August 1991, when nobody was there. They found a child's palm print in the home that looked quite fresh. The police's next step was to visit Margaret Hobbs, who they had found through Robert's offending history. As you would expect, everything she had to say about him was negative. She recounted to the police that his behaviours were continually escalating and he had no intentions of changing it. The following week, it was time to attend Robert's home in Glen Waverley to speak to Lorraine. At 7am, they arrived at the Lowe household, which they found to be well-maintained and pleasant. Officers were greeted nervously at the door by Lorraine, who let them into the house. 
When asked, they were told by Lorraine that she believed Robert Lowe had been at home the weekend that Cherie Beasley had been abducted. But later in the day, she would second-guess herself. All her weekends blended together. Lorraine called Robert to let him know that the police had been by. He seemed very uptight about it, which Lorraine did find odd. He called back every hour for the rest of the day to see if the police had returned to the house. Little did he know that police had actually already began surveillance on him and were watching his every move. On the first day of surveillance, police watched as Robert parked near Windsor Primary School and went into the school. Not ten minutes later, he was chased out by a teacher and he jumped into his car and drove off quickly. Soon after, he flashed his genitals at a group of girls just outside the St Kilda Bowling Club and ran away. It wasn't long before police had a search warrant for Robert and Lorraine's Glen Waverley home. They removed Robert from the home and took him to the St Kilda Road Police Station, which was one of the few police stations at the time which had the capability to videotape suspects and witnesses. As he had before, Robert denied owning a home in Rosebud, and he explained away and shrugged off his past known offences. He was shown a photo of Cherie Beasley, who he said he had never seen before. Police confronted him about his little-known past in New Zealand. In 1955, in Wellington, he had committed an indecent assault on a male and obscene exposure in Auckland. After police brought up his New Zealand past, he clammed up and stopped responding to questions. He also declined to provide them with fingerprints and blood. Meanwhile, back at the Glen Waverley home, police conducted the search warrant, found newspaper clippings about missing girls including Carmen Chan, Mr Krull's final victim. They also seized various fibres and hairs from a vacuum cleaner. On Friday the 23rd of August 1991, one of the members at Robert Lowe's church, Ross Brightwell, made a phone call to Rosebud Police Station to inform them that he believed that Robert had been down to Rosebud the weekend Cherie went missing. He recalled Robert telling him that he needed to go to the holiday home to repair a tile and his wife had actually written it down in her diary. Police confronted him about this and he was forced to admit that he was in Rosebud on the weekend that Cherie went missing. On the 24th of September 1991, Three horse riders were riding in Red Hill on Mornington Flinders Road in the morning. They could smell something that smelled rotten, and after looking around, they spotted what they assumed was a dead kangaroo near a drain entrance. The next day, one of the girl's sisters was riding in the same spot and saw the dead kangaroo when she realised it wasn't a kangaroo at all, but a small human body. She called the police immediately, and it was quickly determined that the little body belonged to Cherie. Professor Stephen Cordner conducted Cherie's post-mortem examination at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Pathology in Melbourne. Upon examination, Professor Cordner realised that the top vertebrae in Cherie's neck was fractured, which he considered an unusual site for a fracture. He also noted that it appeared Cherie's Adam's apple had been sliced with a knife. 
While the exact cause of death remained unknown, Professor Cordner believed that little Cherie had probably been severely injured with scissors or a knife. When the police told Lorraine that Cherie had been found and the location of her body, she recognised it immediately. It was an area where she and Robert had spent time collecting pine cones on the side of the road. She was shocked to hear this link between her husband and little Cherie Beasley. Kerry and Steve were absolutely devastated to hear that their baby had been found and suffered such a horrific fate, brutally murdered and stuffed into a drain. Her family held her funeral at the Our Lady of Fatima Church in Rosebud on the 18th of October 1991. The church was absolutely packed with mourners attending to pay their respects to the little girl. Everyone wept when they saw her tiny white coffin adorned with long stemmed roses. Kerry would spend a lot of her time at Cherie's grave, talking to her and telling her how much she was missed. While she spent many hours contemplating suicide, she knew she had to keep fighting to take care of her other children. Cherie's little sisters were plagued by nightmares about something happening to them too. Life looked very different for the family. On the 6th of April, 1992, Robert Lowe went into Margaret Hobbs's office to talk, not knowing that police had placed bugs in there. He told her that he knew where Parkmore Road was, the road where Cherie had disappeared, and said that he had some thoughts about what would have hypothetically happened if he had have abducted her. He began a confession-like hypothetical and said, quote, I, I've, you know, I've pulled up the car near the milk bar where a ki- two kids were arguing. Um, I left the left-hand door open. I didn't go into the milk bar, and I asked, because they were arguing if she wanted to, want a ride. She just got straight in, and, um, and, uh, I put a seatbelt on. I had uh, helped her put her seatbelt on and then went over to Chinaman's Creek. And at that stage, she began to get uh, uptight or worried and thinking where she was going or whatever she was going to do. So I did a U-turn. I came back along the main highway. At least I think it. There is another road goes right around, but I wouldn't know where that road goes. Come back along the high main highway. Um and I was going to take her back when she started coughing and spluttering and things, and then it went quiet, and I pulled into the side, into the foreshore area, and realised that, you know, she wasn't breathing properly at all. And um, I didn't know what to say. So I I was going to go take her back to where I picked her up, and I thought, look, I can't do that, because I don't even know where she lives anyway. So I took her up to Arthur's seat, and I'm not quite sure of my geography down there. I haven't got a Melways down there. Took her up Arthur's seat, and I just kept going. I didn't know what to do with her. Um, first um, reactions were possibly to dig a dam, a um, grave, and then uh, I could easily do that. It was the easiest thing. I didn't have a spade with me. I could have still done it, but I thought, ah, well, that's going to take some time and everything else. But that's, that's actually the place I've stopped has a drain 
running underneath the road. And I just thought, well, I went down and had a look and it was fairly well hidden. Um, hidden enough to jam the body in. So I carted the body out and I didn't take any clothes off because what is the purpose of taking clothes off when the girl's dead? Um, perhaps if the clothes are missing, I don't know what the clothes are missing. If they, you know, I might have to alter that. Uh, so I just jammed the body down in there. It was a tight fit. I don't know what size the p pipe is. I don't know if tight fit or not. I thought goodness and just panicked and headed back to Melbourne. Margaret was absolutely disgusted by what Lowe was saying, but for the sake of the case, all she could do was encourage him to keep going. She didn't believe that he was giving him the whole truth, but she hoped he was saying enough that charges would be pressed. She tried to encourage him to keep talking by sympathising with him, suggesting that it was an accidental death, trying to coax a non-hypothetical confession out of him. He was pretending he didn't know certain details, like what colour Cherie's helmet was, or what size the drain she was left in was. In another session, she began to press him about the sexual aspects of the crime, but he wouldn't admit to that. Robert wanted to show Margaret where everything had happened. She was incredibly disturbed by how excited and happy he seemed discussing Cherie. One morning, Margaret and Robert took off, followed by undercover police, and drove to the site where Cherie was found. On the way there, Robert pointed out Parkmore Road and the milk bar. He showed Margaret the spot where he had hypothetically picked Cherie up. His voice grew more and more excited as he got closer to the site of the abduction. He excitedly told Margaret that there was no evidence against him. They arrived at the spot near the drain and Robert wanted Margaret to come out of the car with him to see the drain. At this stage, Margaret was beside herself with fear and disgust but was trying to maintain her composure. She told him she would wait in the car. Unfazed, Robert got out of the car and wandered around the drain area for approximately 15 minutes under the watch of undercover police. After Margaret was finally able to drop him off, she pulled over to the side of the road and vomited. On the 8th of May, 1992, Robert Lowe came back into Margaret's office and brought with him a written confession with his version of events of what had happened to little Cherie Beasley. He then made his way to Box Hill where he shoplifted a packet of M&Ms and was caught and arrested, but let out. Police were still gathering enough evidence to put together an airtight case. The next time Robert went to see Margaret, he bought with him a bag and said to Margaret, Do you really think I could put a child in a drain to be consumed by maggots? And with that declaration, he motioned to the bag, which Margaret noticed was filled to the brim with maggots. Margaret screamed and yelled at him to get out. She was falling apart having to work with this disgusting human. She had lost a lot of weight and was scared and shaky all the time. At around this time, police were having their legal team evaluate whether there was enough evidence to charge Robert Lowe with Cherie's murder. They had a brief with over 7,000 pages worth of witness statements and transcripts from bugged conversations. With legal approval, 
they arrested and charged Robert Lowe with the murder, kidnapping and unlawful imprisonment. After being arrested and read his Miranda rights, Robert Lowe responded, Oh, fair enough. Police drove Lowe into Melbourne to appear at the magistrate's court where charges would be laid against him. It wasn't until he saw the media gathering that he began to grow concerned. He didn't want people to see his face on the news. He got out of the police car and was greeted by people yelling, You fucking dog, you fucking bastard. Cherie's family was in attendance at the magistrate's court to witness their daughter's killer. Every person in the courtroom stared intensely at Robert Lowe as he was led into the courtroom. His barrister stated that Lowe would be vigorously denying all of the charges against him. After charges were laid, a distraught Kerry left the courtroom and through her tears spoke to the media saying, It's been 21 long months since Cherie went missing. Now that somebody has been charged with Cherie's murder, I know that Cherie won't come back, but I know she helped the police find him. May justice be done. While Lowe was being held in custody at Pentridge Prison's maximum security wing, he came into contact with Peter Reed, who was the Russell Street bomber and murderer of policewoman Angela Taylor. The two got talking, and Robert Lowe began to open up to Reed about his crimes. Reed ended up speaking to police and telling them what Lowe had told him. Reed said that Lowe told him that next time he would use Valium to sedate his victim and he drew Reed a picture of where he picked Cherie up from. He also said, head jobs, that's how he killed her. Police decided to put a wire on Peter Reed to try and get more information about the murder. But as much of a monster as he is, Peter Reed struggled to hear the details of a crime against an innocent child. Robert Lowe's committal hearing began on the 16th of November 1993, and the courtroom was packed to the rafters. The first person to testify was the little boy that had been with Cherie when she had disappeared, Shane. He testified that the man drove up in his car and asked Cherie to get in his car. She had refused, so the man, Robert Lowe, had got out of the car and forcibly put her in there. Robert had then got in the car, skidded it, and driven off quickly. Shane had then gone home and said that Cherie had been kidnapped. Lorraine testified against her husband and was clearly a broken woman. The stress of the entire ordeal had broken her down, and to top it off, she was also fighting cancer. Margaret also testified that Lowe's barrister tried to undermine her testimony by pointing out that she was breaking patient confidentiality. She continued to maintain that she hadn't. Peter Reed also took the stand and his crazy side came out. He became frustrated at the line of questioning and a lot of people ended up leaving the room during his testimony out of fear. Lowe pled not guilty to the crimes and he expected that he would get off charges as he always had in the past. Then came the trial, which began on the 27th of October, 1994. The jury was made up of six men and six women. To get the trial started, Crown Prosecutor Paul Coughlin addressed the court. He went through what the prosecution knew about that day that Cherie had been abducted 
and played them the tapes that Reed had recorded in prison. The court heard Lowe say, I just saw the little girl and wanted to get her into the car. She was wearing coloured clothes. He continued on to repeat the same story he had told police, which was that Cherie had choked in the back of the car accidentally and he had just disposed of her body. Cherie's mother Kerry and stepdad Steve took the stand to testify. They told the jury about how wonderful Cherie was and recounted their perspective of the devastating day that she was taken from them. All the witnesses to the abduction testified, as well as police officers, the woman who found Cherie's body, and the forensic pathologist Stephen Cordner. Cordner disputed that Cherie had died of natural causes and insisted that Lowe was most likely lying about her just dropping dead without interference. Lowe's family testified about his strange behaviour after Cherie's abduction and the fact that he was uncooperative with police. Margaret and Peter Reed also testified again. Following all the evidence being brought out against Robert Lowe, the jury were impanelled to discuss the potential verdict. After some time deliberating, a decision was reached and the forelady was asked to step forward and read the verdict to the court. Some of the jurors began to cry, obviously distraught by the crime they had been called in to decide on. Robert Lowe was found guilty of all three charges against him. Following this, Cherie's family were able to read their victim impact statements to the courtroom. Robert Lowe was then sentenced to 15 years for the kidnapping and life in prison with no minimum term for the murder of little Cherie Beasley. Our deepest thoughts and sympathies go out to the family of this beautiful, vibrant child, Cherie Beasley. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Please join us next time, and until then, please stay safe.